0: Order out of chaos, order out of chaos, that presupposition uh, supposes that life is a problem and and it needs to be corrected in many ways. Order out of chaos is really the effort that the Apostle Paul put into the church at Corinth to help them correct a number of mishaps, problems, challenges, and even serious, serious errors. And we're in the 10th chapter. We have just come up out of defining what I have called for you guys, the gospel altar. And that was looking at the Lord's table or the Eucharist or the blood and body of Christ on Friday. We unpacked that at length, if you guys recall. And we're not going to go back there, but this is where Paul is using that object to help the church at Corinth understand who they are. And why it is that the Lord's table becomes a standing revelation and a standing call to humanity as to where they are outside of God and how that they can enter into what, again, is the essence of uh, the gospel call. And it really is all about entrance into the what? The kingdom. Entrance into the kingdom. And so that's what Paul is dealing with. He's dealing with kingdom matters. He's actually dealing with right behavior in the kingdom. We call it righteousness, right behavior in the kingdom. The other uh, adjective I put there is practicing righteousness. That really is what we're dealing with right now. So I want you to think about, okay, after we understand who we are in Christ and what he's accomplished for us, What are the distinguishing marks of a believer in the world by which the world knows substantially that the kingdom of God is real? Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is what? Righteousness, peace, and joy of the Holy Ghost. Those qualities emerging out of the life of the believer makes him or her or them very distinguishable when it comes to their being in the presence of men and women that are either also kingdom bound or not in the kingdom of God. When you meet someone who actually knows what the idea of righteousness is and walks within the framework of those righteous characteristics and knows what it is to have the peace that passes understanding Uh, And then also has the joy of the Lord. When those qualities are emerging out of our character and our attitude and our understanding, the kingdom of God is present with people. And it really stands out over against the contradistinction of a person or a people group who are not standing on righteousness, who are not enjoying the peace that passes understanding or who are not actually experiencing the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. So that that paradoxical tension of a group of people in the kingdom versus a group of people out of the kingdom is really what Paul is dealing with. And the Lord's table was a big optic lesson for us. I'm not gonna go back over it, but it starts in 1 Corinthians 10 um, over as we uh, were looking at it in verse 16 all the way through verse 18, where Paul argues for its relevance. And then what he does, he starts in verse 20 with this language. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to what? And not to God. And I would not that you should have fellowship with devils. Now, what is he about to do? He's about to create a dichotomy of tables. This is what he's about to do. And you know, I already know that your bodies may be here, but your minds may not. So I'll give you a little time to catch up. We've just dealt with the table of the Lord, but now what is he talking about? He's talking about the table of devils, is he not? So he's talking about the table and the table is always to be understood as a table of fellowship. It is a table of participation. It is a table of resources. It is a table of blessing. I kind of want you to capture that. When you think about a table, what you're thinking about is a meal. You're thinking about um, access as a community around a meal to strengthen you, to build you up, to affirm your relationship with everyone around that table. Correct? There could be a there could be a number of ways we could adjectivally express. meal. It will be an affirmation that we are hungry because we come to the table because we're hungry. It will be an affirmation that there is a kindness in the subject-object relationship between us coming to the table and the people that prepared it. It can be an affirmation that we are uh, preparing to be strengthened because food strengthens you. Uh, Food strengthens you for your task. It strengthens you for your health. It strengthens you for a number of things. I'm giving you a bunch of ways to think through what it means to feed on Christ because we don't think about it deeply like that. Here was the question I raised on Friday. I raised the question on Friday. What does the table teach people who are observing it from the outside when they see us partake? This Sunday, we will partake of the table. This place will be full. There will be people who are of the community and people who are not of the community. What will they learn from the participation of the table? That's a profoundly important question. And what does the table offer them? Because they're on the outside. Isn't the gospel a call to people on the outside to come in? Right? And so when they see that kind of visual object lesson where there are people who have access to the table, They come to the table, they participate of the table, they ingest the table, they enjoy the table. They're strengthened by that table and then they go away from the table, preparing to come back again. That is a complete, if you will, optic of an overture that this place, that table is where they find their strength, where they find their grace, where they find their community, where they find their fellowship and it's all summed up in a person, and who is that person? All right, this is what Paul is saying in 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 in, in verses sixteen through twenty. Is not the uh, the cup a blessing? The cup which we bless is not the bread which we break, the body and communion of Christ. I'm not going to go back over that again. Like I said, we unpacked it really well on Friday. What I want to deal with now is why Paul is calling the church at Corinth to think about. The fact that there is another table that they must avoid. Because that's what you're getting over in verse 20. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to what? So they have a table of sacrifice because as I share it with you, if if you still haven't gotten it, what's on that table is a body, isn't it? And that body has been what? Sacrificed. That's the metaphor of a lamb. Or a bullock or a goat and to break it down again if if you guys aren't quite with me every time we have a meal and i hope you took this away every time you have a meal you have a small paradigm of the lord's table every time you have a meal you have a small paradigm of the lord's table and particularly if that meal did have within its composite um flesh an animal that had to be sacrificed and died so that its life would be given to you for the perpetuation of your life. And what you and I as Christians are called to do every time we take of any kind of uh, food benefit, nutritional benefit into our body, we always take that food and we do what? We bless the Lord for it. Right, So there is a kind of mini or micro uh, Eucharisto in every food that you and I partake of, if we are getting the analogy, right? Does that make some sense? All right, so there are some things that have gone on throughout the Christian church that become obvious to people in the larger marketplace, because that's what we're getting ready to get into. I think the way I want to frame this now as we deal with our three points is... The, um, the idea of the kingdom of God being set smack dab in the middle of the kingdom of darkness. But I want to reduce it back to our analogy of two tables. One table is the table of the Lord, but there's another table there called the table of demons or devils or Satan. That's what Paul is dealing with. What that means is there are people who actually commune around another table, and that table has a sacrifice on it as well. And what Paul says is you and I need to have discernment, that's going to be our first point, and discretion to make sure that we are not conflating tables. Did that make some sense? We're not conflating tables. So look at the verse again and we will begin to unpack it in terms of our, our, um, our outline and our questions. He says, but I say unto you, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils, And not to God. And I would not that you should have fellowship with what? Again, again, listen, children of God, please listen to how profoundly challenging that metaphor is. Because what he's saying is, if you are ignorant, remember he warned us not to be what? ignorant, not to be agnostic, right? Agnoses is the term, right? Do not be agnostic. Don't be willingly ignorant that you can inadvertently, if not willingly, engage in a table that is devoted to satanic glory. That's what he's saying. And so it would behoove the believer to follow the three points in your outline. One is discernment in what? Holy things, because of what you cannot do. Do you see the first point? Discernment in holy things because of what you cannot do. I definitely wanna keep it within the framework of the uh, table metaphor because that's what Paul is doing. By the time you get to 2 Corinthians chapter six, he brings the subject up again. We'll see that in a moment. But the big optic that I want you to be thinking about with me for a moment is the word discernment. It takes discernment to know whether or not we are engaging in something that is acceptable or not. Would you agree with that? Right. So the uh, idea of discernment is being able to decipher between the um, right and wrongness of a thing. Discern, it means to divide, or you can use the metaphor of seeing twice. Discern, to discern something is to penetrate its obvious into what is much more... Uh, much w- much more substantial and what is much more critically dangerous or, blessed or um, beneficial to you, the idea of discernment. So your Bible would tell you that, that you and I would seek discernment. Through your precepts do I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. So to discern something, is to see through it as to what it is. So when I say that our first point is described by discernment in holy things, because of what you cannot what do this is what the apostle paul is setting forth notice what he says in verse 21 you cannot drink the cup of the lord and the cup of devils this is what i meant okay so now we're going to break it down but what i what i was getting at is just framing point number one is simply coming out of verse 20, 21, and 22. This is how you create what is called a sort of uh, expository development of the text. Exposition is when the text gives you propositions for which you can frame a response in a very cogent fashion. Verse 21 tells us you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partaker of the Lord's table and the what? table of devils. Now, okay, let's just talk about that attack. You actually can. What he means by cannot is that you should not, right? So so what, what Paul is doing here is letting you know that it will never work for you to be non-discerning in terms of those things by which you would apply yourself for nourishment, for edification, for strength, for joy, for pleasure, for fellowship, for communion, all implicated in the table. That's what I'm saying. So there are people who can really sort of navigate being in the church and in the world. I'm using some very rude and generic terms, but it's very important to know there are people who can engage in ostensibly partaking in holy things, but also partaking in unholy things. We do know that, right? Well, in reality, you can't. What what Paul is saying is it really won't work for you to eat at the table of Christ, but also eat at the table of Satan. So what we would want to visualize in our head is what does that look like on a practical level? We will unpack that on Friday. We'll have the lengthy Q&A because it's very apparent that the church at Corinth is actually trying to do that. Look at verse 22. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Do you see it? Right. So uh, now what is Paul doing? He's drilling down into a behavior pattern that has already come up with the church at Corinth. And you know what that is? The church at Corinth is proving itself not to have discernment. It's, it's taking on false teachers and false prophets and allowing them to come in with bad teaching and heretical teaching and false doctrine and things of that nature. And quite naturally, if false teachers come in with false doctrine and false practices, then the people of God are going to, on a propositional level, be feeding on erroneous things. Would you agree with that? Right. And, and, and once you and I are dealing with a table of light and a table of darkness, a table of satanic devotion and a, a table of holiness to Christ, one is going to cancel out the other. And that's what Paul is saying. And this is what we want to work through. So really simply under point number one, discernment and holy things because of what you cannot do. So point A, demonic devotion is both unclean and what? Forbidden. So, let's identify the um, characteristics of of the table of Satan. It's, It's contrary to Christ in that the table of Christ is clean. The table of Satan is unclean. The table of Christ is holy. The table of Satan is unholy. Again, I'm not going to drill down deep. It's just Tuesday, you know how it goes. So these these characteristics can be held in your comprehension and thinking this way. If I am feeding on something, if I am imbibing something, if I am repetitively going to the table, the marketplace, and depending upon something for my nourishment, for my strength, for my edification, for my joy, even for my pleasure, because food can be, Uh, pleasurable as well. If I'm engaging in that and it becomes the essence of my internal ingestion and therefore transformation, then I am going to, by association with that table, if it's unclean, I'm going to become unclean. If it's unholy, I'm going to become unholy. You are metaphorically what you eat in that sense, right? So we're dealing with an analogy now. What that looks like in practice you know, we can, we, can, we can drill down and surmise into it a little bit. Subpoint B, Christ is holy and what? Pure. And, and of course, as Christians, what do we say? We feed on Christ. I am the bread of life. If any man eats me, he will never die. I am the bread which comes down from heaven and I give my flesh for the life of the world right and except you eat my flesh and drink my blood you have no life in you that's jesus's word in john chapter 6 as you know and by the way this is the reason why christians were killed in the first century because they were in a calumny called cannibals because of the metaphor of the body of Christ, the Eucharist, the feeding on Christ. Now, the rulers never came to understand that they were speaking metaphorically. All they would hear is that we're going to partake of the sacrifice. And many of them were imprisoned for a so called barbaric act called cannibalism. But at a larger metaphorical level, spiritually speaking, there is a kind of truth to it. Would you agree with that? And and this becomes the rude thing for which in John chapter 6, a lot of people left Jesus because when he said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And many stopped walking with him at that point. So the profundity of the Lord's table is this, that when people partake of it, what they're saying to the world is Jesus is actually my life. He's more to me than bread and water. I feed on him for my absolute existence, identity, sustaining my character, my strength, my revelation, my joy. Um, If I don't have Christ, I will die. That's kind of what the believer is saying. And so um, under point number B, listen to Hebrews 7, verse 24 through 26. This is concerning the Lord. And by application, it would be concerning you. And I'll make that plain in a second. Notice what it says about Christ. But this man, speaking of Jesus, because he continues how long? Right. Here's, he's talking now about the resurrected Christ. Right. He had a physical life, he died, he rose again, right? So this is what we call his resurrected life. Not the fact that he existed eternally as God, but he rose again from the dead as a real man and he lives forever and he is the mediator between us and God. The man Jesus, he ever lives to make intercession. You agree with that, right? Look at the next verse. Notice what it says. I'm sorry, um, Jashana, stay back back in 24. This man, he continues forever, and therefore he has an unchangeable what? Right. So um, the correlation between the table, which is called the altar. Didn't we learn that Friday? Hebrews 13, the table is the gospel altar, Like in the Old Testament when they offered sacrifices and bullocks and lambs and turtle doves and goats, all that, all those were sacrifices. In the New Testament, we have but one sacrifice that was offered one time that is pictorially given to us perpetually in the symbol of the table. It is the bread and the cup. Would you agree with that? That is the New Testament altar. That's the New Testament altar. It is a picture of him who is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, we feed on him by what? Faith. We don't feed on him literally. We don't feed on him in some kind of esoteric way. We feed on him by faith. So we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and in believing on him, we are in constant fellowship with his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, right? And we feed on his incarnational availability to us. He is our high priest, is he not? Right. So a high priest always led God's people in worship to God. And the high priest was the one who led in the sacerdotal offering of sacrifices. So for the priesthood, their worship of God was sacrificial and giving. But God also allowed them to partake of the sacrifice because they were one with God in Christ. So we as the people of God, we feed on Christ because we're also an eternal priesthood. Would you agree with that? All right, good. So now here's the qualities about Christ that I wanted to bring home around the table. Because not only is he the high priest, he's a sacrifice, isn't he? Look at verse 25. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost who come unto God by him. Would we agree with that? All right. It could be unpacked, but it's just true. Jesus is able to save anyone, anytime, anywhere, no matter how extreme the case is. Ask the thief on the cross. It's a beautiful reality seeing he ever lives for this purpose what does he live for what does he live for to make intercession you see that all right capture that narrow it down jesus is alive to intercede for us jesus is alive to intercede for us we have a mediator in heaven who intercedes between us and god For our life. It's extremely important. I told you guys this on Friday, Jesus is not a Maytag man. You and I got problems and and we need a mediator to help us in our weakness, in our erring ways, in our falsehoods, in our struggles. We need someone who actually has great favor with God, who represents us and represents God to sustain us in our journey. You, You agree with that, right? right so what's happening here i'm helping you understand christ's role separate from us but now i'm getting ready to help help you and i understand christ's role in contingency with our identification with him is critically important so this high priest that we tell everybody there's only one there's one mediator between god and man the man christ there's not two not ten only one That's god's son god gave his only begotten son whosoever believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life he's the mediator now look at what uh, the Hebrew writer says in verse 26. For such an high priest became or becomes who? Uh-huh. For such a high priest is for you and me. For such a high priest is ours. Now here's what he's about to say. I want you to get this. The high priest is actually a co-extension of the people. In other words, as the people are, so is the high priest. And as the high priest is, so are the people. I want you to get that because I want you to take the individuated Jesus and the individuated us and join them together in union. Is that legitimate theological doctrine? Isn't that called the doctrine of union with Christ? Because I live, you shall what? Also live. Right. When we use the proposition in and the pronoun him, we're saying that we are in him. He is in us. We are one with him. Would you agree with that? So everything that Jesus is, we are in him. Would you would you would you accept that proposition? Else, I've been teaching this wrong for decades because I say this all the time. Right. You want to know who I am? Really? Look to Christ. Because everything that he is, I am in him and everything that I am, he was for me. Christ died for our sins, rose again for our justification. Whoso believes in him shall never perish, but have everlasting life. There's a union between the priest and the people. This will help you if you haven't ever been exercised by this truth around your identity. I'll help you if you don't know it. You and I will always struggle with your identity as long as you are deficient in your knowledge of who Christ is and who Christ is for you. You and I will always struggle with our identity as long as you are insufficient in your understanding of your mediator. To the degree that you and I are lacking in spending the necessary time knowing this man who loved us and gave himself for us, to that degree, we are failing to understand who we are. To the degree that I come to know more of the person and work of Christ, To that degree, I come to know who I am. That makes sense, doesn't it? Right. So as I'm learning about Christ, I am doing what? Learning about what? That's exactly right. This is why Jesus said in Acts chapter 9, just in case you think this is profound, there was a brother that was beating up a bunch of folks in the church. His name was Saul. And when Jesus came to him in Acts 9, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Saul, never saw Jesus before, but he saw his body. And Jesus owned his body as himself, and he accused Paul of persecuting him. This is how much we are one with Jesus. Does that make some sense? It's important for you to get, because a lot of times we will inadvertently separate ourselves from Jesus and get locked into our own individuated identity, and that's where your trouble comes in at. You are not enough all by yourself. That makes sense. All right, so here's what it says about Jesus, which also is by implication, by de facto, ipso facto, saying something about you. Somebody said, right. Sound like a Baptist preacher up there, right. If this is true, notice what it says. The first thing is he's holy. Is God's people holy? As one he's harmless are God's people harmless he's undefiled are God's people undefiled now watch this separate from sinners do you see it So I want you to get those qualities I'm here on purpose I'm trying to show you how important it is to make a distinction between who we are and what we do in the world in relationship to the world with whom we engage does that make some sense right. The motive and impetus, the drive for which you and I must understand what it means to be in the world and part of the sinful community of the world, but not of the world in terms of our identity and our calling and our destiny. There is a dichotomy that needs to be comprehended. And if it is, here are the qualitative characteristics that should hallmark your life and mine as we're maturing in Christ. Shouldn't people recognize your holiness? Shouldn't they recognize your harmlessness? Shouldn't they recognize your undefiledness and your separateness from sinners? Shouldn't they also recognize your position in Christ as being made higher than the heavens? Yeah. Yeah. The people that are going to do that are the people that are going to be drawn near to us in divine providence in relationship dynamics whereby God is just bringing them into a knowledge of who he is through us. There are a lot of people that are going to be in our space as human beings, and they're going to have to deal with the reality of who we are. There are going to be a lot of people in your life and mine that are going to be in our space, and they get to know God through us. There are going to be a lot of people that God brings you into contact with, communion with, you know, enjoyment with, uh, uh, colleagues at work, colleagues at school, et cetera, et cetera. You and I don't live in a vacuum. You're not living on your own. You're not on the island of Patmos. And because of that, I, I just want this to come home, there will always be somebody close enough to you for them to know who you really are even if you don't tell them because of who you are in Christ. Is that making some sense? All right. So what I'm doing is laying a foundation for the appeal that Paul is making. And his appeal is, please don't conflate the tables in such a way that people don't know who you are. Because if they don't know who you are, they won't know who he is. That makes some sense, doesn't it? All right now that's listen this is not easy what i'm talking to you about is not easy because i'm thinking about the the the, I'm, i'm thinking about the tension i'm thinking about the paradox i'm thinking about what it means to be um separate from sinners but not you notice the text said jesus was separate from sinners And yet the Bible also says he ate and drank with publicans and tax collectors continually. This is called the present indicative verb form. Every time you look up, Jesus is eating and drinking with publicans and tax collectors. Matthew 11 says, John came neither eating nor drinking. He was ascetic. He lived in the wilderness. I like a brother like that, you know, but he didn't have time for people except when he was doing his ministry. Jesus came eating and drinking. That means there was a tenor about his life that you could see him in the public marketplace all the time. Is that coming home? Mm -hmm. All right, I want to create the tension a bit more for you and me. What I want you to struggle with is you and I don't get the comfort of taking the table of the Lord and putting it way over here. Boom! And the table of devils and demons so far over here that the two have no relationship at all. Did that make some sense? Mm-hmm. I, know, I, know, I know it's going to be a struggle, but I'm getting ready to show you. The text in front of us tells us that the tables are probably this close. Let's call this the table of Christ and the table of the devil. And for some of us, because of our nature, this is too close for comfort. Some of us can handle this. Some of us can handle a table right here while their table is right there. Others of us are constantly looking over on their table to see what they gonna eat. I want you to to get it now. I'm using a metaphor because it's Tuesday. You know, I'm gonna take you in the rabbit hole on Friday, for real, because the metaphors are designed to show you whether or not you have discernment to know how to be near but not in close, but not compelled and committed. And the nearness is evangelical in nature. It's evangelical in nature. It's you have to be near because Christ was near. And, And one would ask, Could the table of demons and devils that was devoted to, you know, Asclepius and and, and Horus and, and Apollos and all of the Greek pagan gods of the first century, could those tables have been that close to Jesus? The answer is yes. And he never would have reached over there and had one bite of those demonic tables. He would have stayed at the table of Jehovah Yahweh, because he would have understood the exclusivity of holiness. Did that make some sense? All right, so I just want you to get this. When you and I think about holiness, we're actually thinking about our position and our identity, not the intrinsic qualitative nature of your personhood as being sinless in, in the sense of intrinsically sinless. I'm sinless in Christ. Would you agree with that? I am not sinless in myself. So my holiness is positional and it's intentional, but it's not qualitative, qualitatively comprehensive. What that means is while my master wouldn't have a temptation looking over there, I do. And this is what Paul is teaching us. Now, Jesse, you cannot sit at the table of the Lord and at the table of devils too. Just letting you know, bro, you getting ready to get into some trouble. Work it out, young man, right? Now, I would, I I would like to just pick my table up and go on over here, but that would be non-evangelical. It wouldn't be like Jesus. And then the problem is I then already took a snapshot of the table. So even when I put my table over here, the table is over here in my mind. So I can still partake of the table because it's all about what's in my heart. It's too late. I saw the goodies. Am I making some sense? I want to get the analogy because I want you to understand at the pragmatic level, the pragmatic level is how to live in the world, practicing righteousness without being self-righteous. Is that making some sense? Plus, you know, I love the metaphor of food anyway. So, you know, this is great for me. I hope it's working for you. This is why the t- I laid out Hebrews chapter uh, 7, verse 24 through 26, because we do know, according to 1 John chapter 3, as he was in the world, so are we. I already know that. Now, what I love about that proposition is Scripture will tell you and I who we are in Christ, And then tell us, now work it out, wouldn't it? As he was in the world, so are we. Is that good or what? But in reality, I can be in a world, in the world, in a way in which he was not. But the promise of scripture is that because I'm in him, I can be in the world the way he was. In it, but not what? Of its principles, of its ideology, of its evil, of its propensities, of its bents, of its corruptions, of its vileness. But now we're talking about we're talking about discernment. Are we talking discernment? All right. That's the first one. Good. So I want to go to the second one. I'll pick up on uh, this again on Friday. So the first word is discernment to divide between the two. That's Leviticus 10, 10 and 11. Right. To discern between clean and unclean, between holy and unholy. That's what you call it. Second one is what? discretion in your liberty in order to walk in. I got a slanted line there you guys got that all right look at Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 I'm going to come back uh, all I want to do is build a, give you a building block and then we'll come back and deal with it more fully on Friday we'll go deeper into the c- complexity of it but here's what the well, here's what Paul said to the church at Ephesus in verse 1 of chapter 5 and follow this be ye therefore followers of what that makes sense by the way, that's called an imperative in the Greek grammar, be ye is an imperative, but it's an imperative in the passive sense. It didn't say, do ye therefore followers of God, it said be ye. This corresponds to Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount called the be attitudes, not the do attitudes. Did that make some sense? Right, because there is a doing and then there's a being and being here has everything to do with relationship and nature, not with effort, asceticism, and 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 if you were behavior first, it's be children of God, like you must be born again. That's an imperative, but it's not something you can do. It's an indicative that just must appear. Being followers of God is an imperative, but it's not something you can do. It will either emerge that you are children of God or you're not. Now, here's what he says. Be ye therefore followers of God as what kind of children? Right, that is agapatos again. What it simply means is be like Jesus. Be ye followers of God as dear children. That's what he's calling us to do. Now, look at verse 2. And walk in what? And walk in what? All right, very good. So you see in your outline under point number two, discretion in your liberty in order to walk in what? There it is. Discretion in your liberty in order to walk in love. So that's what we're going to drill down into for a few minutes now. We unpacked the first one just a tad. We didn't really unpack. We just kind of introduced it. Discretion in holy things because of what you cannot do. I'm going to come back and show you that Joseph understood that. Joseph understood how to be in the world of Egypt and not of it. Joseph understood how to be in Potiphar's house with Potiphar's wife and not of it. Did y'all got that? Right. So, so under point number two, discretion in your liberty. Discretion is almost like discernment, but discretion is the ability to exercise a kind of sensibility around choice-making a sensibility around choice-making that um, affirms your wisdom or your prudence, discretion, and your liberty. Look at what verse 23 and 24 says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Again, verse 23 and 24. Are you there? All things are lawful for me. Do you see it? All things are lawful for me, but all things are not necessary, are expedient. All things are lawful for me, But all things do not what? Huge. Here's what Paul is saying to you and me. There's a level of freedom that we have in Christ that's massive. There's a level of freedom we have in Christ that's massive. The average Christian doesn't even know the scope of that freedom for a whole lot of reasons. But that freedom also comes with a call to virtue. And what that means is, in my freedom, I've got to make choices that make sure that I don't dissipate my freedom in foolish choices or behavior. Does that make some sense? Right. All things are lawful for me, but everything is not expedient. What would that mean? What would that, what would that idea of everything is expedient, everything is necessary, what would that be inferring? It would be inferring that whenever I see an opportunity in front of me, because I'm free to have it, I want it. So this is going to get into, uh, again, the wisdom that human beings have to have in order to actually secure happiness. I'm going to take a minute to do it. Can I do it? All right. so uh, when you're a child and you go into a candy store, and we do this every time we go to different countries. Barbara and I will go find the candy store in France. We will go find the candy store in London. We'll go find the candy store anywhere in any of the Germany or, or um, we've been all over. We're looking for the candy store because in the candy store they have a thousand different kinds of candy. When you go in there you immediately start getting high. Am I am I telling the truth? Y'all don't know. Y'all, so when y'all make y'all money, just just we're walking around and it's candy on the shelf and it's candy on the floor. It's candy everywhere. Now, if I were a child, I would OD right there on the spot, just fall out with a a sugar. O D, because I will have overloaded in my choice making and gorged myself until I went into a coma. Is that true? All right, and, and here's the metaphor. I want you to get it. You're laughing, but it's really important. Um, there are a lot of things in life that are like that. They are sweet, sugary. They are compelling. And there are many of them. And discernment is required in choice-making so that you don't hurt yourself. Did that make some sense? It's extremely important. What Paul said is, all things are lawful for me, but not everything is necessary. I don't need the whole store. You get a little bag, because they give you the little bags. And you can go in and pick, select 20 or 30 little pieces, right? And that's got to carry you for the whole trip. You know, I generally say, Barb, I got to get some for my 12 grandkids. She says, yeah, right. Um, But the point is, is when you and I know how to say no most of the time for the well-being of our witness and testimony and our own health, this is what he's talking about at the level of spiritual good. Did that make some sense? At the level of spiritual rightness. All things are lawful for me. All things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but not everything what? Yeah. Right. Under point number two, I, I, I love this. Under point number two, discretion in your liberty in order to walk in love. Subpoint huh, A, avoid creating. Now we got to go to now Romans chapter 14, verse 13, because this is actually what Paul is dealing with. No, I'll start verse, get verse back at, go with me to 1 Corinthians 10, 24. I just want to go there first and then I'll go. In fact, I have to do 24 and 25. Look at 24 and 25. Do you see it? Notice what verse 24 says. Let no man seek his own, but every man another man's what? Well, well so that's an italicis, but it really means it's his own good. If I am going to use that, that axiom as a check on my freedom, because that's what he's saying. In your freedom, don't think you're free just to take everything at your availability to consume it upon your own lust. That makes sense. Right. Because now remember, we're making a distinction between being children and adults. You expect when you take a kid into a candy store to absolutely lose his or her mind. You expect them to actually exercise the highest level of narcissism. You can see their head swelling up right before you, right? The world is theirs. An adult adult has to know this. I can't make choices now that completely disregard everybody in my life and that this is all about me. And this is the tension of the Christian life. The tension of the Christian life is how to be both free and responsible at the same time. Did that make some sense? We're almost done. Five more minutes. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Do you know what this verse conscribes to? Love. Agape is always about what? Giving. Agape is always about giving. Haven't we, been, haven't we learned that? Agape is always about living, giving. Jesus didn't come to seek his own. He came to what? To give, right? To give his life a ransom for many. And so now we're also now being taught that even though the world is ours, we still need to conduct ourselves in a fashion to be responsible towards others. Does that make sense? right now look at romans chapter 14 verse 13 i love it because romans 14 again is where the apostle paul is telling the church at rome "You, you guys need to be careful you don't want to be exercising your freedom in a way that causes people to stumble there it is let us not judge let us not therefore judge one another anymore you guys know we've been through that right But judge this rather, discern this, assess this, analyze this, draw this proper conclusion that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. You got that? That's it. What attention? What attention? I'm free. I'm free. But I'm never free to use my freedom to hurt people. I'm never free to put an occasion of stumbling in front of my brother with my liberty. I'm never free to do that. I'm not free to absorb my freedom on my own self-satisfaction, particularly if others are watching. Remember, we're in the world. You got a group of people with a table over here. You got a group of people with a table over here, right? They're watching us as well as we're watching them. They're watching us as well as we're watching them. I'm I'm thinking I'm almost there. I got five more minutes. So I want to walk through about four verses on this one. Look at verse um, 14, Romans 14, 14. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. Powerful. Did you see that? Do you believe that? That's wild as well so here actually you know paul is doing from another angle he's teaching us the characteristics of our freedom this is so powerful because what he's saying is there are a lot of things in the world that used to be decreed unclean that god has now allowed to be partaken of remember acts chapter 9 Peter's on the top of the tanner's house. He sees a vision of a sheep coming down from heaven with all manner of animal in it. Peter, rise, slay, and eat. Peter understood that, that, that Christ was calling him to eat uncultured food. He said, Not me, Lord, not me, not me. And Jesus says, Peter, that which I have cleansed, call not thou unclean, right? So now guess what the believer is being called to? the believer is being called to recognize what is clean in God's sight versus what we think is clean and unclean. You can take that as a note because this gets into the idea of being strong and weak. Like a weak believer, according to 1 Corinthians 14, will find things unclean that the Lord has said they're clean. Y'all got that? Now, he's putting a tag of unclean on it Because he or she doesn't know how to negotiate their freedom to that degree. So they'll put unclean, 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 prohibited, not right, unholy, unclean, on all kind of stuff the Lord has not called unclean. Now stay with me. This is nothing but projection on a psychological level. This is a Christian not able to discern and embrace freedom at the level of the Lord's glory, but because they don't have the intrinsic quality to operate out of that freedom, they actually want to shut everybody else down. Am I making some sense? Right, this is a fundamental attribute of the Pharisee. Touch not, taste not, handle not, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. What did Jesus say? Doesn't matter, I'm telling you, I'm Jesus now. Right, you hang out with me, I'm Jesus. Jesus. Now we got a problem, don't we? So, So look at verse 15. I'm going to go through verse 17. We're almost there, you guys, almost. Now, if your brother be grieved with your meat, now you are walking not what? Charitably. So now notice what the text says here. There's a converse behavior that's not good as well. You got the behavior of the weak brother who is tagging everything unclean, unsafe, prohibited, don't touch this, don't touch that, don't touch the other. Then you got the other really foolish brother that says everything is good to go, come on y'all, jump in. And he completely disregards the quality of maturity or immaturity in his Christian brother or sister and their background, their backstory, the struggles they have with this, that, or the other thing. Am I making some sense? And what they're doing now is opening up the door for a gradual conflation of the ta- table of the devil with the table of the Lord. That's what the church of Corinth is struggling with. So again, the lesson here, and we're done, the lesson here is how to keep an appropriate distinction between the two tables while enjoying the fullness that God has for us. Did that make some sense? How to maintain a distinction between the two tables while enjoying the fullness of that God has for us. That's what Paul is talking about. So I'm going to stop here because it's time for prayer.